0: We've been talking about the importance as a disciple of Jesus to make other disciples of Jesus, to share the greatest message in all of human history. And so what we're going to do this morning by way of ending this series is return back to the very passage of scripture that we began. We've been talking about this value of one, one willing witness, one act of obedience one soul responding to the greatest story in all of human history. Most of us have walked with Jesus for any length of time. We, we're familiar with the people who've reached thousands. We know those names. Most of us, though, don't know the names of those who touched just one. Several weeks ago, I mentioned just one of those individuals, a, a guy named Edward Kimball who would go on to reach a young boy named Dwight L. Moody. Most people who've walked with Jesus for any length of time, they recognize if they don't outright know the name Dwight L. Moody, but I'm guessing few, if any of you, prior to the message a few weeks ago had ever heard of the word of the name Edward Kimball. It's always those people who are in obscurity who Jesus does his best work through. It's the people you never hear about. When I think about the value of one, I think about somebody else you probably don't know. A man by the name of Bill Merritt. You wouldn't have the opportunity to know him anyway. He's been in heaven for around nine years now. But Bill Merritt was a man who influenced me greatly as a teenager. The man who led me to Christ was a man who's who has been went on to be a, a very famous missionary. He's a professor now. He's a fairly well-known guy named Bill Cashin. Hopefully, I can get Bill to come if I can talk him into... Not sharing some stories with you. Maybe come and share with us at some point. But the man who really taught me about the practical nature of my faith is a man that you've never heard of before today and never really had a reason to hear of. He was not a famous preacher or evangelist, he was a blue collar mill worker from Greer, South Carolina, who volunteered to teach ninth and tenth grade boys Sunday school. That's what he did. And Bill Merritt was one of those guys. I think about all the, the things that God's allowed me to do. And any, any, any accomplishment in my life is like any accomplishment in any other person's life. The, the life of Jesus really is my only victory. Amen? And yours as well. And so everything that God, by his grace, has allowed me to accomplish, I think about almost 28 years of ministry now, well over a thousand sermons, somewhere north of 2.3 million words that I have spoken publicly, and that that doesn't even count today. Who knows what that count will be by the end of today? I think about every single time that I have ever stood... To proclaim the message of the gospel. Some, some of those congregations were small as a dozen people. Some were as large as 3,000. Some of them were in cornfields out in the middle of the Midwest, somewhere in some town you'd never hear about. Some of them in the middle of major cities in Southeast Asia. But every time my lips have spoken or my pen has written the gospel and it's touched another person, you can trace the touching of that heart back to a blue-collar mill worker who wasn't looking for a spotlight, wasn't looking for any recognition, was just looking to invest in the life of another. And in particular, Bill Merritt never had a vision for reaching tens of thousands of people. But somebody, the Lord Jesus, in fact, gave Bill Merritt a vision for this 14-year-old, ninth grade, insecure, not doing very well in school at all, had just lost his grandmother, boy named Joel Rainey. That's somebody who has a vision for one. And let me tell you something as we end this series this morning. Those are the people that Jesus uses more powerfully than anybody else. If for no other reason just to prove to us that he doesn't need spotlights and cameras and celebrity and microphones. Those are the kinds of people that he uses. It's the people who have a love and a passion for one. Some of you have the capacity to to have way more of an impact in the life of one individual. You're thinking about your loved one and bringing them perhaps over the next couple of days to one of our Christmas Eve services, and I certainly hope you will. But hear me, brother, sister, you have far greater capacity to reach that person than I do because your passion, your vision is for the one. And so I want us to look back again at this passage of Scripture that demonstrates this. The passage that we started this series with, John chapter 1, and it does it through through contrast. We, We think of the disciples and probably the first three names at the top of our list are the three names that get mentioned most in the New Testament, Peter, James, and John. Now here's the interesting thing. When Jesus referred to those three guys, he called them sons of thunder. That was not a compliment. It wasn't. They shot off at the mouth way too quickly. Someone would reject the gospel. And they'd get angry and want to call fire down on them. They were not patient. They were impetuous. They were impulsive. They often moved before Jesus gave them permission to move. Don't ever hear the name Sons of Thunder and think he was paying them a compliment. It was Jesus' sarcastic way of describing their current state of spiritual immaturity. As one Native American used to say, all thunder, no rain. There's just nothing there. As the cowboy in Texas said, all hat, no kettle. This is is what we're talking about. These men, they shot off at the mouth. But there's there's contrasted with them the brother of Peter, this man named Andrew that we've talked about before. And Andrew, Andrew always seems to be hovering in the background. He's not the star of the show. He doesn't want to be. But don't let... The work in the background fool you into thinking that Andrew was passive. This man was bold and decisive and determined. And let me tell you how we know this. Because if there had been no Andrew, there would have been no Peter. And brother, sister, that's the kind of vision you need for your loved ones. As we approach the holiday season, as we look forward to 2020, as you think about people in your sphere of influence who are far from God and who do not yet know Jesus, that's your vision for one. For one. And don't just ask yourself whether they will escape the hell that we talked about last week, as important as that subject is. Don't just ask them if they will come to Christ. Ask yourself what Christ can potentially make them to be. What do you believe is possible? I was sitting with, or standing rather on a street corner in a very rough part of Baltimore about a decade ago with one of our church planters literally watching a crack deal go down on the opposite corner. And the, and the planter pointed out, he didn't point like, you know, obviously, we didn't really want to get shot or anything, but he pointed out the dealer and he looked at that guy and he said, Joel, I've been praying for that guy. We've had a couple of gospel conversations over the last couple of weeks. I've, over the last six months, gotten to know him. He's, he's one of my neighbors, and I am praying for him. Listen to this. Not just that he would escape hell, not just that he would stop selling drugs. He said, Joel, that man's going to be one of our pastors a decade from now. Let me tell you, that's what Jesus is capable of. That's what he's capable of. Do you hear the redneck preaching to you this morning? Do you know what this God is capable of doing with your loved ones? And is your vision for them as big as Jesus' vision for them? That's what we want to talk about this morning. There are characteristics of, a, of the kind of person who has this kind of vision. And I want to give you three of them that are fairly easily extracted from the life of Andrew. First, They see the value of individual people. These are the people who aren't concerned with how large the crowd is so much as how full the souls are. And and Andrew appreciated the value of a single soul. There's no record of this man, the brother of the guy who preached the Pentecost sermon and saw 3,000 people come to the Lord. There's no record of Andrew addressing a crowd. But every time you see him in the New Testament, you know what he's doing? He's bringing somebody to Jesus. He's bringing somebody to Jesus. Look at these two passages. In 41 and 42, he first found his own brother, Simon. Now, that was quite a sell, wasn't it? You better be living it as well as speaking it if you're going to reach your brother. Amen? Yeah, because they've seen your dirty underwear in the floor. They know all the bad stuff about you. They've been living with you all this time. And he said to him, we have found the Messiah, that one that the prophets have been talking about, all the way back to the time that our father Father Abraham was promised that Messiah, we have found him, and he brought him to Jesus. Five chapters later, there's a crowd of people and there's no food. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? He brought the boy and his lunch to Jesus. He didn't know what else to do. And so he brings everybody to Jesus. You know, most people don't come to faith in Christ as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. That's not to say this is not an incredibly important time, it is, but most people don't immediately respond in things like this, particularly in the emerging generation that we're witnessing now. They come because they know, love, and trust someone who has already come. Now, I, I've had people tell me, Pastor, there's, there must be something really exhilarating about preaching God's word in front of a crowd of people. It must be really exciting to be under those lights with an open Bible and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And it is. It's, it's an honor and a privilege. But I've but I got to tell you this. The times in which I've been most overwhelmed by God's presence and power. I mean most. I, it's happened up here on many occasions, and I'm thankful for it. But the times when I have most felt his power and presence ha, have been times like these times that Andrew is experiencing. Listen, with all, with all the stuff and the equipment and the, the, the things, that, the, with the resources we have around here, you can fake revival. You can do it. But when God shows up in a place you never thought he'd be, and you see something miraculous happening, like a few years back when I was in the Middle East with no microphone, no spotlight, no television camera, no no nothing, I'm sitting at the table of a very wealthy man who owns a very well-known international truck parts company, some of you work on trucks for a living. If I called the name of this company, you'd probably recognize it. He's the owner of the company. He lives in this particular part of the Middle East where a bunch of us are sitting around this dining room table that's twice the table itself is twice the size of, of this preacher's dining room. And we're talking about a number of things that we're there to talk about, but somehow the conversation leads into the idea of human sin and the need for redemption and why there's all the problems in the world and comparing and contrasting both Muslim and and Christian understandings of what it means to sin and having the opportunity to give that man the the Christian perspective on these things and, and with the Muslim call to prayer in the background as the sun was going down being able to tell this man about forgiveness and why Christ is necessary to forgiveness, being able to point to something as innocuous as a chandelier hanging over his table that probably costs more than what this old boy makes in a year. And I said, if I do something foolish and this thing falls to the table and it's destroyed, you have one of two choices. You can rightly hold me responsible. You can make me pay for it, in which case I'm going to be in debt to you for a long time. In fact, for the looks of this thing, my children might be in debt to you. Or you can forgive me, but here's the thing, dear sir, if you forgive me, you're going to have to fix it. Because forgiveness always costs something. And see, this is why believers, I, I know that this is a struggle for you because of your faith background and what you've been taught, but for Christians, this is why we believe that the crucifixion of Jesus didn't just happen in history, it was necessary. Because forgiveness has a cost. And we agree that God is holy. And that he will not sweep sin under the rug. So what's he going to do with it? It must be punished. It must be paid for somewhere. And in that place, as the sun is going down, with none of the accoutrements that I enjoy today, a man heard the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time in his life and had the opportunity. Listen, God doesn't need a microphone. God doesn't need a camera. Let me tell you what, God doesn't need anything, but let me tell you who he uses. God uses people who understand that there is nothing on earth more valuable than a single human soul. No matter how rich or poor, no matter what language they speak, no matter who they are or where they come from, there's nothing more valuable to God than a human soul. Who's that person that God's been waking you up at 3 a.m. to pace the floor and pray for? Who is that person? And and don't just ask yourself what it is they're going to be saved from. Ask yourself what it is they're going to be saved toward. Who has God created them to be? What can Jesus do with them and for them? Someone with a genuine vision for their loved ones sees that value in individual people. Secondly, they see the value of insignificant gifts. Look back at John 6, 8, and let's see this again. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? There's a story about a young preacher who preached his first sermon ever. Small church of about 50 or 60 people. He was as nervous as he could be. His hands were shaking as he got up there. But as he, as he got into this story, and this was the story that he chose for his first sermon ever, is this story of the, the five barley loaves and the two fishes. And, and the more he talked, the more excited he got about his faith. And, and before you know it, he was exclaiming with all kinds of energy, Brothers and sisters, God took 5,000 loaves and 2,000 fish and fed five people. Well, any of us is prone to do that kind of thing, but there was a crotchety old guy in the back. There's always someone somewhere who just yelled out, good grief, I could do that. Well, it just crushed this young preacher, 19, 20-year-old young man. He just, he went home teary-eyed. He's like, am I going to be, can I even do this? Maybe God hadn't really called me to do this. And He, he got around some other wise folks that encouraged him and bolstered him and told him, you, you're going to have days like this. So he got emboldened. He went back the next Sunday, preached that same sermon, and this time he got it right. Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. You know that same old guy was there, and again, he said, good grief, I could do that. And the preacher said, how? He said, well, all that bread and fish you got left over from last week. There's some doubt in there. I mean, our propensity is always to focus on the lack. What are they for so many? There's even some doubt in Andrew's statement here. is all we have. But he brought the boy, and he brought the bread, and he brought the fish, knowing none of that was going to be enough to accomplish what needed to be accomplished. But when you bring something to Jesus, when you bring someone to Jesus, I, 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 I don't know but what there might be some kid that there's a mama in here, and you've been harping on them for all these years about all the things they should be doing, decisions they should be making. You, you know that has absolutely no effect on your kid, right? Trying to control them. Why don't you bring your kid to Jesus, and why don't you let Jesus do exponentially more than you ever hoped to do with that kid? When you bring something to Jesus, when you bring somebody to Jesus, Jesus will do what no one else can do, what no one else can do, because there's no gift, no matter how small, that is ever insignificant once it is placed in his hands. And we see that. We see that in Andrew's faith. We see that in, in what happens later in that miracle. You, you, some of you, you may not have a lot of money to give. You, you, may, you may think to yourself, I'm not talented enough. I'm not skilled enough. I'm not, I'm not eloquent enough. Maybe, that, maybe this whole series, you've been, you've been thinking to yourself, man, yeah, how, how in the world could God use me to, to reach that one? He hasn't so far. And besides, Pastor, I can't speak. I'm not wealthy. I don't have a lot of influence. And the whole time, you're forgetting about Moses' stutter, Peter's temper, Paul's terrorism, Jonah's fear, David's immorality, Abraham's cowardice, Jacob's deception. God uses people just like you all the time. His great delight is to use people like you. Because guess who gets the glory for that? he does and that's his great desire listen there are mega churches defined as 2000 people or more in average attendance on sunday morning all over this land you take every one of them and there're more of them now than there have ever been in the history of the united states of america you take them all you put them together Their conversion growth rate, that means the the growth that they get by people actually coming to faith in Jesus, of all of those megachurches, all that money, all that power, all that influence, all those large facilities, it's less than 1%. Now, they do a lot of good work, and I thank God for them, but those are not the panacea. That's not the answer. Let me tell you, Jesus is looking for somebody like you with no more than the equivalent of what this little boy had He's going to ask you for it, whatever it is. And he's going to use your willing obedience to do more long-term for his kingdom than any celebrity pastor on the planet will ever be able to accomplish in this life or the next one. I'll say it again. Nothing you do for Jesus, nothing you give to Jesus is insignificant. Nothing. You have great hope this holiday season in that fact. Here's the third thing people with a genuine vision for their loved ones, they see the value in inconspicuous service. I want to call your attention back to something I mentioned at the outset of this series that's found one of the, in John 6. One of the disciples, Andrew, notice the phrase that comes later, Simon Peter's brother. You know, even when you get a mention in the Bible when they have to attach someone else's name to you for people to know who you are, that's inconspicuous, isn't it? Andrew. Who? Wait, you know, Simon Peter. Oh, yeah, I know Peter. Peter. Yeah, it's his brother. Peter had a brother? Some of you are that brother. You're that inconspicuous person that, that nobody knows about. There are a lot of people connected to the modern church in the West who will work very hard and do a lot of really good things in a transactional way. They'll do it in exchange for usually some kind of recognition, a spotlight or a microphone. If either one of those things are a non-negotiable for you to serve God's church, you're not serving God's church. I don't care how hard you work or what you think you have accomplished. That's an indication of pride. That's a level of self-centeredness that we've already got way, way too much of in the Western church. I actually had a conversation a few months back, if you can imagine me having such a conversation with someone who actually, the person's exact words, if I can't be on that stage, I'm not coming to this church. (laughs) Bye, Felicia. Nobody, nobody, including this boy here, has a right to stand here. Nobody. But you know what? It's, it's one thing to say, you know, I sense God calling me to do this. It's quite another to have that kind of, that kind of idea. i got to do that. If I don't get that, if, I don't, if I'm not heard, if I'm not seen, one of the things you miss in the middle of that, in fact, most of the drama, some of the most intense conflict I have ever experienced as a pastor in 28 years of ministry, have been when you remove someone from a platform that they have fallen so in love with that it has become their God. You've got to ask yourself about that. We don't need more rock stars in the church pimping their own brand. You know what We need. We need people with a heart that says, I just want my neighbors to know Jesus. I want my neighbors to know Jesus. Look at Paul's words in Ephesians 6. Not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You know one of the reasons I was excited to come here four years ago? is because I knew the vast majority of the people in front of me were those kind of people. I, I, I called this church when I came. I told the church committee, I said, Covenant is a sleeping giant. I think there are so many people here unaware of their own potential that God has placed in them that they don't have a sense of what God wants to do with them. They don't find themselves capable. They don't think they're the right material, which means they're precisely the right material. That's who most of you are. You just want to please Jesus. You just long for your neighbors and your loved ones to know Jesus. You want to serve and share in the name of Jesus. But you think your obscurity or the fact that you're not an eloquent speaker or the fact that you think you could never do what you see me doing right now means that you can't do it. Listen, the past few weeks, the messages I've preached, the three circles training we've done in our small groups, everything we've done around this theme and this series has had one goal. To convince you that you are exactly the person Jesus is looking for to get this done. Exactly. Your aunt, your uncle, your grandmother, your coworker, your child, your parent. They're going to see a change in you. They're going to respond to you. You have far more influence than someone like me or any other pastor does in their lives if you will just give them and yourself over to the King of Kings. And don't worry about the fact that you're not well known. Neither was Andrew. God doesn't need your fame. Your fame makes him want to throw up because it takes glory from him. I had the opportunity for several years to be in different places around the world. One of the places where I just, I'll admit, I had a lot of fun was to be able to do some evangelistic, missionary, church planting work in the Caribbean islands. And I know what you're thinking. Boy, you were really suffering for Jesus, weren't you, Pastor? Yes, I get it. I don't know who's planning on going to the Caribbean Islands in the next 12 months. I imagine quite a few people. You've, you've got an anniversary. You've got a family vacation. There's something, and you're, you're looking south, particularly on days like today. I understand that. Next time you go, let me encourage you to do a couple of things. Number one, get off the resort grounds, okay? In fact, find a good mom-and-pop resort, all right? Let me pause for a minute. Public service announcement. Stay away from sandals, Okay company has horrible ethics. They don't hire locals. They do nothing really to to benefit the local economy. Just stay away from all that place, all right? Didn't I just do eight weeks on justice? Go find a mom-and-pop resort, all right? But then do this. Get off the resort grounds because that's not the island, okay? Some of you think you've been to a foreign country. The only place you've been is to a westernized resort. You ain't been to no foreign country, okay? Get off of the resort grounds, have a cab driver, somebody take you along some back roads, you're going to really see the beauty of humanity. But one of the things you'll see, particularly if you're in the Caribbean islands, is just a ton of these really old, really beautiful church buildings. Most of those church buildings are Moravian churches, a denomination called the Moravian Church. The very first Moravian church ever placed on those islands was put there in 1753 on the island of St. Thomas. Who's been to St. Thomas? Yeah, it was a British protectorate back then. By a man named Count Zizendorf. Now, unless you've studied historical theology on a seminary campus, this may be the first time you ever heard of Zizendorf. Zizendorf would be totally okay with that. Because those... Churches are there because Zizendorf sent those missionaries out. And as he sent them out, he said, you have three objectives. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Now, if if you're the kind of person that worships celebrity, you're going to respond, well, gosh, that sounds so dark. Are you kidding me? You have any idea how freeing that is? That it doesn't matter how many Twitter followers you have? Really? At the end of the age, that means nothing to the Lord? What he wants is willingness, obedience, a heart for him and a heart for other people. That's why those churches fill the Caribbean islands right now. Preach the gospel. Die. Be forgotten. In the Western church, we have lost something of what it means to value obscurity. The fact that you don't need to be known You don't need to be recognized. You don't need a platform. You don't need a certain amount of money. You don't need a particular kind of ministry. Some of the most powerful preachers, even in Scripture, were the guys who only got one shot. Anybody remember Micaiah? I'm guessing a few of you probably do, but not that many. Let's back up. Let's back up to 2 Kings. Ahaz and Jehoshaphat are preparing to go to war together. Jehoshaphat's not too sure about Ahab. He's got reason to not be sure about Ahab. Ahab's a wicked man. And so he says, isn't there a prophet of the Lord that can speak to us and tell us whether or not this is really a wise thing? And Ahab calls his religious advisory council of prophets. And you know what they tell him? Exactly what he wants to hear. You're a wonderful man. You've done this. You've done that. You just go ahead. The Lord has given you this. And Jehoshaphat, well, he smells something. So he says, Isn't there a prophet of the Lord? I mean, I've heard the prophets of Ahab. I'd like to hear a prophet of the Lord. And Ahab says, Well, there's this one guy, Micaiah, but he never says nice things about me, ever. So they call Micaiah into the throne room. And Micaiah, I, I, I can relate to Micaiah a little bit because the first thing he says is, Go on up! The Lord has given you! It's, it's sarcasm. I, I don't know, I find that entertaining. And Ahab says, I charge you to tell me the truth. And Micaiah says, okay, I saw all of Israel scattered all over a mountain like sheep who have no shepherd. You're going to lose this fight. That was his one shot because the most powerful man in the room looked at Jehoshaphat and said, see, I told you he never says nice things about me. And he calls for his guards. and He says, lock him up. For me to deal with when I come back. And the last thing we hear from Micaiah are these words. King, you ain't coming back. One shot, he's faithful, he speaks the truth, he goes into a prison cell, and we never hear from him again. But brothers and sisters, that's the kind of obedience Jesus wants. That's the kind of faithfulness he wants. And when he gets that, he uses that in powerful ways. Hear me well. We don't need fame. We don't need fame. It's one of the reasons as we, as we talk about our future as a church, we've got a couple of new, new churches that we've helped to start this year. We're looking at some satellite campuses in Virginia and Maryland, and, and it's one of the reasons I've told our elders and our staff, we are not doing video venue. We're not doing it. I mean, you may as well stay at home if you're going to do that. We're going to have live preachers. I have a feeling I'm training some of them right now. I don't know who they are yet, but I believe God's going to identify them because the Word of God is the star of this show. And by the way, when I'm out for the next couple of weeks, some of y'all need to remember that. The Word of God is the star of this show. You're giving this old boy way too much credit If you don't show up just because Pastor Joel's not there. That's a side note, doesn't cost you anything extra. Here's my big point. Jesus does his best work through the people nobody knows about. Those people are going to be way ahead of people like me and people that have preached to tens of thousands of people when we get to glory. Early church tradition tells us how things ended with Andrew. Andrew. Very, very strong evidence that he carried the gospel as far north as Russia, possibly even as far as modern-day Scotland. And we know how he died as well. He shared the message of Jesus with the wife of a Roman provincial governor who was radically saved and came to faith in Christ in such a way that it apparently altered her lifestyle in a way that enraged her husband. We don't know any details except that we know that this provincial governor called on his wife to renounce her faith, and she refused. And so finally, this governor said, well, you can refuse if you like, but I'll make sure this Andrew, whoever he is, is never able to share this story ever again. And so he had Andrew crucified. And early church tradition tells us that Andrew because they did it on the side of the road in the Roman Empire, just a little refresher course. They did that so that as you're headed into the kingdom, you see those bodies hanging there in unspeakable anguish as a message that you don't cross the state because this is what happens when you cross the state. But as people passed by Andrew, during the two days that he suffered unimaginably on that cross, he would call out to those passers by on the road and plead with them to turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. That's how his life ended. How you want your life to end. Is that what you want to be known for? The older I get, the more that's what I want. Not the crucifixion part. But but Whatever, but you know what? When you, when you choose to obey Jesus, whatever comes with it, Lord, whatever comes with it, this is what I want. The latest research from Barna tells us that here in the United States, those of us who sit here this morning and have inherited our faith, ultimately, from people like Andrew, that 98% of us have never shared the message of Jesus with an unbeliever ever in our lives. There are no crosses hanging up in Shepherdstown. Nobody's trying to put us to death. What are we afraid of? And even if they were, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. What are we afraid of? Folks, there is nothing to fear. Fear. More than 90% have never invited a non-Christian friend to church. You get an opportunity to do that this weekend, starting tomorrow night, to say to them what Andrew said. Come and see. It's even on the little tags that our staff made for you. Come and see what God is doing. Come and see what he can do in your life. 80% haven't even invited another Christian neighbor. Somebody moves in right next door and says, Hey, uh, we just moved into town. We're followers of Jesus. We're looking for a good church. Only 20%. Do we have spiritual vision for our loved ones, for our coworkers? I tell you, if I was a business owner, I I don't know how regularly I would do it, but I'm telling you, on a a regular basis, I, I would call a meeting of all my employees, I would pay for them to have a nice dinner, I would compensate them for the time that they were there and i'd share my testimony i would do everything i could that everybody within my sphere of influence heard the message of jesus what they do with it that's between them and the lord but what are we doing to make sure our people in our sphere of influence are getting to jesus and what is our vision for them what's our vision for what they can become with him two percent of us are exercising that privilege wow May it change. And when it does, may we take joy in the fact that our values now match with the Lord's. That we are now practicing the truth of what we believe. That there is nothing more valuable to God than a single human soul. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your passion for us. A passion that you were not required to have. A passion that Father sent your son to the cross to die for our sins, to be raised so that we can have eternal life. And Lord, we who are the beneficiaries of that are, as D.T. Niles said, beggars who have found bread. Lord, give us a passion to be able to share with others where we have found that bread. Give us a trust that allows us to bring people to you so that you can do what only you can do. Give us a a confidence in the ability of the gospel to do its work apart from our eloquence or talent or resources. Give us a joy that does not reside in how people respond but that is impassioned by the high and holy privilege that we have to tell the story. And what a powerful story it is. What a profound difference it's made in my life in the lives of so many people in front of me. Father, as we celebrate this Christmas season, we know that it begins with a God who entered human history. Lord, the glory of that is so unfathomable as to render us speechless. But we thank you for the gift that we celebrate at Christmas. And I pray in the name of Jesus that others would find it also through the passion that is ignited in the people in this room, and I ask it in the name of the one who became flesh and tabernacled among us, amen. Hi, everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God, and if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again, and God bless you.